a listener production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to episode 128 of the Howie Games Part A featuring one of the great blokes in Australian sports media, Sandy Roberts. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ampl. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Now, I love everything about this episode. Sandy's rise through the ranks from a bloke cleaning out animal sheds to becoming one of the most recognised faces and voices on Australian TV. It is a beauty. Pigs at full forward, Miss Australia interviews, crazy Olympic tales, blokes lighting scripts on fire while Sandy was trying to read them. This is good gear. Sandy's was a time of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants TV. Stuff-ups would be laughed at and then completely forgotten. Commentary was colourful, it was fun, it was full of laughs. The game of footy in particular was just that, a game. The broadcast, they weren't as slick as what we see today. They weren't as analytical, but they were on point. The commentary was elite, the looseness of it all, the playfulness of it. It looks like it would have been great fun, great fun to be involved in. So you search and try to find but you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Now, just before we get to Sandy, the great pineapple on pizza debate that features in every player profile. If you haven't listened to them, please check them out. Well, it's a serious topic, although I didn't realise that it was this serious. This audio from social media this week, an American lady and her Italian fella sitting down for dinner in his hometown in Italy. Carlo, do you think if I ask for pineapple on the pizza that they'd give it to me? I don't know, but if you do something so, I can continue to live here. Probably Why? If somebody knows that you are my fiance and here you ask pineapple, I can live here. I can Everybody stop so dramatic. So dramatic. Pineapple in the pizza. Yeah, you asked for pineapple on the pizza here. I can't live in my hometown anymore. <laughs> that is next level. Alrighty, here's to Sandy Roberts, a man that had the best job in the world and did it as well as anyone in the world. Enjoy. I reckon you will. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion I Welcome to the Howie Games, one of Australia's greatest ever broadcasters, a man I've admired for a long, long time. I had the opportunity to work with him, not that he would remember back in the day. The great Sandy Roberts joins us on the Howie Games. Sandy, it is wonderful to see you. How are you going? Howie, I'm very well and I'm, I'm happy to say that I've got over the fact that you are so disappointed that I don't like pineapple on my pizza. <laughs> well, we nearly had to shut it down after you said that <laughs> last week. Hey, mate, it, it is great to see you. Extraordinarily, I, I had a look and I've been looking at YouTube. There's a couple of things I want to get away right at the start. There's there's a classic bit of vision of you from the US Open at Oak Hill 
and you are getting ready to do a cross and you're talking about all the television gear in the background and you're standing on a mound. It's an amazing thing, television ladies and gentlemen. Five years ago, who would have thought that I'd be standing on 70 tonnes of unused rubble in the city of Rochester? Sorry, we're ready, are we? <laughs> we got speed? Stand by. <clears throat> The second day of the US Open here at Oak Hill could best be described as a strange one. It belonged to the defending champion, Curtis Strange. Now we are sitting here, which must blow your mind, with you on a computer, on me on a computer, doing things that would have taken hundreds of thousands of dollars and tonnes of equipment back in the day, Sandy. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, it is. I still have trouble comprehending it, but... Um, in those days, Howie, you you flew by the seat of your pants in in so many different ways. I can give you I can give you classic examples of um, what it was like in in those early years of doing major OBs. I mean, in nineteen eighty, when we did the Moscow Olympic Games. Well, now you know very well now. In today's world, if you're a broadcaster and you're selected to go to the Games, you are informed of what sport you'll be doing probably sometimes 18 months in advance, maybe even more because you'll probably, yeah. you know, you're a natural to do that sport. Absolutely. In those days, we were back in 1980, Ron Casey, who I loved and just think is a, was a wonderful, wonderful man, um, he let us know beforehand for example, it was Bill Collins, who was a magnificent race caller. He he was given the athletics, so he knew, and he called it yep. a bit like a horse race. Uh, Co was one <laughs> out and one back from Steve Ovette. <laughs> I was given, I think, diving. But see, I mean, the, those events only went for probably six days. Yeah. So it got to the stage when the crew which numbered, by the way, only 53, I think, right. because of the the political ramifications with Afghanistan and Russia. And Malcolm Fraser had said to the Australian team and to us, the broadcasters, you don't have to go, we won't hold it against you. So we took 53. Normally in these days we take 300. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I got to the stage after that that Ron would conduct breakfast at 7.30 every morning and it was on that morning that he would say, for example, Bill Collins, you're doing taekwondo. <laughs> Sandy Roberts, you're doing archery. So there would be this mad scramble to the media centre to find out all we could about these particular events. So that's where we've come from. So, Sandy, that, that, that's, that's brilliant. So, so what would you do? So say... Like, give me an event that you had to cover in Moscow, for example. What's something you covered after the, the first week was done? Did you archery. do archery? Archery. Okay. Olympic Arrows, Moscow 1980. To be able to tell about this picturesque, exciting and technically involved sport, one would have to live his whole life in it. So tell me, you, you race to the media centre, there's, there's no internet, there's no computer hookup. What, what are you doing to avail yourself to information about the world's best archers, Sandy? Okay. What, what they had in those days, as you say, there was, there was no internet or anything like that, but there was just reams and reams of 
paper and that, that you know, it, it, you'd, you'd have to find archery, then go along to the day's program, then pick out the, uh, the pages with the <laughs> people that you want to talk about and away you go. I mean, it was, it was hard, but it was, but that's the way you learned. It was, and it was exhilarating. It was like you're going at 100 miles an hour in Olympic Games, as you know. Yeah. Um, every day. And it's, you don't worry about getting tired. It's just, it's just such a buzz to be involved. And I guess twofold, and we'll get to your footy broadcast because I've looked a lot of it in the last week and there's things I want to bring up with you about it. In those days, I guess if you butcher a bloke's name or get a fact completely wrong, you don't have the keyboard warriors at home that can look up on the internet and say and send you a quick tweet saying, <laughs> hey, you stuffed that up, you clown, because you're the wealth of knowledge. So I guess if you're just saying it with confidence, you're always right. Well, I think uh, one of the things I did in those early days, particularly at Olympic Games and particularly at Winter Olympic Games, um, if, if, you know, they don't, they don't show you phonetically how to say the, <laughs> the name either. So I, I learned to say those surnames that gave me a bit of trouble rather quickly <laughs> and almost as if I was glossing over it. <laughs> and then, of course, you, you know, you... You'd use other lines like the Russian was magnificent or something like that to, to get around his name. Like, you know, Jamila Kratokralova would be running in the women's 400 and, oh, that was a mouthful. So, yeah, it was, it, it was a great learning curve, Howie. <laughs> the, the other thing while we're on this topic of technology, I think it was, uh, it, it was the footy and I was looking at it. I don't know if it was Seven's Big League in the day, but you were doing a cross, all right, yep. to Lindsay Fox, who was the president of St, St. Kilda, and yep. he was in Hawaii. Saints President Lindsay Fox from Hawaii. Well, Lindsay, it's now obvious that war has been declared. What's the next step to be taken by St Kilda? Well, I've, I've always been a great one fighting fire with fire. And you had this big box next to you <laughs> It looked like you were trying to talk to a bloke on the moon and when Lindsay would talk, the director would take a tight shot of the speaker box that his voice was coming out of, Sandy. It was, it was magnificent television. <laughs> that wasn't me. That was the director. Blame him. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it was. I mean, uh, gee, you've, you've done well to find that. <laughs> I, I hardly remember that. But, yeah, Lindsay was yeah. a fairly short stay at St Kilda, but he was very generous to the club and, uh, well, perhaps it would have been nice if he'd helped us technically with a bit more innovation in the studio. (laughs) Well, talk to where it all started, but now we're on the Olympic theme. Uh, Eight summer Olympic Games, three winter games. I also saw a clip uh, of you outside, a a bobsled set up somewhere explaining what it was like to go down the bobsled. For those of you who've dabbled in dodgem cars and often thought you'd like perhaps a little more excitement, then I think we can provide the answer for you. Instead of some sporting achievements, you don't have to be crazy, but it helps. But what are your fondest Olympic memories? Because I remember the great Dennis Cometti telling me on this show very early doors that the Olympics can make or break you as a broadcaster because, as you said, you're wandering into areas that you really have no idea about. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Um, look, I think like a number of things, Harry, you tend to... Remember the first time you do things. Yes, big, you know big big things. So, so my first Olympics was 1980, and that was probably the thing that 
put me on the road. Yeah. Well, certainly it was the thing that got me to Victoria because midway through those games, Ron Casey, who was the host, the primetime host at night, yep. um, besides running the whole program, right. fell he fell ill in the fact that the stress got to him and he got this terrible rash uh-huh. on, on his face. So Gary Fenton, who was the executive producer, said, look, Rom, we can't have you on air. So they had to put someone else on air and they asked me <laughs> if I'd go on air wow. and do the, the night host, which I did. Welcome once again to Moscow. And um, it was a couple of days before the end that, Case and Gary asked me if I'd like to come to Melbourne and um, huh. work for Seven, and that it probably took me about ten seconds to reply in the affirmative. <laughs> so let's talk about. I'm, I'm fascinated about the 1980 Olympics. So who'd you fly over? Was it a Qantas job? Was it an Aeroflot? And what was it like? Because you were going behind the the Iron Curtain at that state. Must have been fascinating, Sandy. Yeah, we were. Um, I, I remember we we flew Qantas. Now, as I said, there were probably 53, I think, and we all, yep. the bulk of us left from Melbourne. But I just remember on the flight, I think I was in seat something like 126F <laughs> and I remember Ron Casey coming down from 1B and because I was the new boy, uh, there was, the, the, along with the producer from Adelaide and... Um, Ron, he 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 was a he was the sort of person that was um, you know sort of touchy feely, like he'd grab your shoulder or something like that. And I never forget that he came down and he just put his hand on my shoulder and said, "Welcome aboard. If there's anything we can ever help you with, you just let us know." And wow! For him to come down to this little greener green. Junior, yeah, uh, and say that, that it's amazing what that does for you. My and I, I, I've never forgotten that. So, and then on the other hand, Howie, when we flew out of Moscow, uh, we were all very pleased to leave. To leave, but you know, yes, the security was immense, but you could, you know, you dealt with it. Um, right. You walk from you walk from the IBC to a venue in two rows of armed soldiers. So you walk down the middle. Um, When we left, we flew Aeroflot and some of us had a couple of days off and I went with Ron Clark and Ray Weinberg, who was the field expert and Ron was track. We flew to Germany, but the pilot very kindly announced um, over the PA, ladies and gentlemen, I thought you might like to know we're now out of Russian airspace. And there was a massive <laughs> applause from, from the entire plane. So it was good to be it was good to be out. So tell me about in a bit more, Sandy. I was lucky enough to go there for the Winter Olympics in uh, I should know, I think it was twenty fourteen. And I'll never forget. So this is this is twenty five years after Gorbachev. The wall's gone down. It's a it's a progressive country. And I remember, Sandy, I wanted to use the gym in the hotel of a morning before I went up the mountain and froze to death. Yep. And I had to go to work at about 7.30 and the gym opened at 8. And I asked the bloke in charge of the hotel, can you open the gym early? And it was just disbelief 
It was just that is the rule. The gym cannot open till eight o'clock. So no. So I'm thinking, well, I'm here for five weeks. You can't keep a rig like this going, Sandy, if you're not if you're not in the gym. And and I said, can I have a key? And it was a completely alien concept to him that he would change the rules. In the end, we had to get on the phone to the owner in Mexico who was a non-Russian who eventually gave the sign-off, but nobody in 2014 was making a decision beyond their station in, in my experience in Russia. So I can't imagine how regimented it was in 1980. That's extraordinary, actually, because... Uh, yes, it was, but Russia had decided because of this problem with Afghanistan, they wanted to show the rest of the world that we're not as bad as you might think we are. Okay, so okay. Th- things were things were opened opened up. They one, they took all the uh, uh, homeless people off the streets. Um, they made a really conscious effort to be polite and helpful. They didn't take away what they had in those days um, were these vendor machines in the streets. Yeah. And you could be a 10-year-old boy and wander up and get a a small bottle of vodka or boozer, (laughs) whatever you liked. Nice. I'll never forget forget we um, (laughs) when we'd send material back sometimes, you could actually go to uh, into tape machine areas and things like that. Well, they'd be sitting there with alcohol, and it was it was like you know, is there any sense of urgency here? And Boris would say, "No, it is not. No. All is good. All is good." So it, it, it was different, but they but they still they still did a good job. Um, one because they didn't have. They only had about a third of the, a third or half of the countries that they'd normally have to deal with, and they wanted to right. put on a decent show to show the world that, yeah, we have a problem with Afghanistan, but you know we welcome you, and, and they did. You know, I don't, I find it amazing that those guys with you in 2014, that's 34 yep. years later, oh. uh, were so regimented. Oh, Sandy, you got no idea. Like we, yeah. we, Channel 10, this is about you, but the, we booked, Channel 10 got the Olympics late, right? Yep. So I was up with a guy called Michael Kennedy up around the Extreme Park area and it was obviously it was the Winter Olympics, Sandy, so it was bloody freezing. <laughs> so we'd yeah. be there from about 2 in the Arvo through till 11, 12 at night, depending on what time the snowboarding or the, the moguls finished. And we didn't have an inside booked area. You know how you have to book things through the IBC, yep. the internet, the broadcast. Yep. We, Channel 10 had booked it so like they didn't have one. So there's me, there's uh, Kenno, there's a producer, a cameraman and a sounder. And it's 10 p.m. at night and, and we are half frozen. All those hand warmers, we'd stick them all over our yeah. body. <laughs> and then we would go down and try and find an empty commentary box just for half an hour to turn the heater on so it didn't freeze to death and the (laughs) Russians had come through and say, no, you don't have the pass to be in this area. Back back on top of the building and we're we're freezing. We don't care if you freeze to death, you should have booked a commentary box. So it it was an extraordinary setup. So uh, 84, LA and then Seoul, Barcelona, Atlanta, Sydney, 
Give me another Olympic story. We'll, we'll move on in a moment, but well, I'm fascinated by the games. Give me another Olympic story. Um, I, I found that the Winter Games were the hardest to do, basically, because, uh, well, the weather played a major part. Yes. Um, my first one was in Sarajevo and we stayed in what was a converted prison. And <laughs> Sounds um, good. The temperature was about hovered between minus 20 and minus 24. So <laughs> I can relate to you feeling a, a bit fresh <laughs> in Russia. And so the Games of the 14th Winter Olympiad are underway. But I think this was a classic. Like you, there were only four of us that went. Gordon Bennett was the producer. Oh, I know Gordon. Steve Thompson was the cameraman and Mark Fennessy was the sounder. Right. And I was the host and the caller. And that was it? Only four of you? Yep. Right. And we did our thing and Gordon was in charge of transport and all that sort of thing. And it came the final day and we'd done, done the voiceover for the closing ceremony and everything and... Uh, we said to Gordon, because we're all fairly keen to get home. <laughs> and now, you've you got the bus or the van organised? Yep, no worries at all. So as you can imagine, the day after the closing ceremony, there are buses everywhere with all the broadcasters trying to get out. One by one, we saw them disappear. And it got to the stage where we kept tapping on <laughs> Gordon's back and saying, Gordy, Where's our van? Where's our van? <laughs> Finally, uh, he decided, or we might have forced him to, go over to one of the bus drivers and just say, look, we ordered a, a bus uh, to take us to the airport. Can you confirm that it's here and or it's coming? Yeah. And lay me down, the bloke said, uh, I asked Gordon his name, Bennett, you come with me. Gordon had ordered a 64-seater bus to take the four of us to the airport. <laughs> so it was a cushy ride home. <laughs> so of, of all the Olympics that, and you've seen events live, which is the great joy of the Olympics, isn't it, Sandy, yep. when you're broadcasting, that Correct. you get to see these larger-than-life athletes in the flesh. Who's the one athlete or the one performance that for you has been above all others? Oh, dear. That's a very good question. To answer it, I I agree with you about the live stuff and I think sadly in many ways the way television has gone nowadays, uh, you know, you can be plonked in a booth in Sydney or Melbourne and say, righto, yep. talk about the kayaking coming up for the next hour. Yeah. You know, yep. that doesn't excite you. But, look, there are, there are so many... Great stories. Um, there was a one that I really enjoyed because I did gymnastics for a number of years, and uh, there was a an Italian gymnast by the name of Yuri Keki, and his specialty was the steel rings. Right. And as you know, they're called the steel rings yes. because that's the object. Yes. Keep them as still as you possibly can. And this was coming into Atlanta, I think it was. Um, okay. And he'd been. He'd been world champion um, for a couple of years. He won everything. He then did his Achilles about uh-huh. 15 months, I think, before the Olympics. And, it, you know, he did an Achilles badly. So he was in real strife. Anyway, he, he overcame the injury, 
went into rehab, worked his butt off, came to the Olympics and the pressure from particularly the press in Italy and, and the Italian fans was immense. Could this great man who gave us so much complete his career, come back after this horrendous injury and win a gold medal? Well, he produced almost the f- most flawless, perfect performance on the steel rings wow. and he won the gold medal. He's not even winded. Yuri Kaki. To me, stories like that really do stick with me and um, that was just a superb effort. But right. I was in Seoul in 88 when uh, I got a call in the middle of the night to go and chase up a gentleman by the name of Ben Johnson who oh. just tested positive, if you so remember So what's the chase-up involved? I watched it at the grand final, Sandy. Yeah, it was... Uh, I think I would have rather been at the grand final. Um, it was uh, Channel 7 in Australia ringing me, yep. saying, look, we've just heard, can you just get on the case and see what's happened? So it was a, a major, major story. And he lost the gold medal. I've just been handed a piece of paper here that if it's right, it'll be the most dramatic story out of these Olympics or perhaps any others. It says, Ben Johnson of Canada has been caught taking drugs and is expected to be stripped of his 100 metres gold medal, according to International Olympic Committee sources. Were you trying to track Ben Johnson down? Were no, you like- no, you couldn't. You, you, uh, you, all you could do was attend press conferences yeah, okay. from the IAC or something like that or his country. And um, if my memory serves me correctly, he hardly, I don't think he said a word. He, he, he was in disgrace. It was... It was terrible. People who know me in Jamaica and people who know me here know I would never take drugs. I have never ever nearly taken illegal drugs and I would never embarrass my family, my friends and my country. Back to Sandy in a moment, continuing on the sports commentary theme leading up to the Olympics. Next up on the show, a fella by the name of Lee Diffie. Diff has an incredible story to tell. From calling motorbike racing in Queensland to being handed the job by one of the biggest television networks on the planet, NBC in the USA, to commentate what will be the biggest event of the upcoming Olympics, what's always the most watched event, the men's and women's 100-metre sprints. Fair gig, no pressure. But Diff will nail it. It can't be any harder than his early days on the microphone. What was the first thing you ever commentated on? When were you first given a microphone by someone and how and told, talk about this? I think I was 20. I was 20 years old, so I was, still, I was still at uni. And it was the local motorcycle club. It was the Ipswich Motorcycle Club. Uh, and they wanted somebody to do their just PA, their public address. And um, hmm. they said, now, listen, young fella, we'll be able to pay you too. You can get $60. We'll pay you $60. And I think I called about 95 races that day. Uh, <laughs> now, they were short. They were short. They were like four-lap races. But um, it was a long day sitting in a wooden tower in, in Tivoli Raceway, you know, outside of Ipswich. And uh, the lap-scoring ladies were behind me and I was just sitting out on the front uh, kind of 
porch area, perch area, and I had a, an old transistor radio and a microphone and, you know, someone would bring me some water or a can of Coke or something and I'd commentate. And then in between races when I wanted to rest, I'd just turn the radio on and put the microphone next to the radio <laughs> and it go out <laughs> on the speakers. Oh, DJ then, Diffie. Uh, DJ Diff, that was, that was how it all started, yeah. That's Lee Diffie next up on the show, one for all the dreamers out there. All righty, let's get back to Sandals. Sandy, we're about half an hour in. We've knocked off a few Olympics, but where did this journey start for you? Where, where did you grow up and where did you first – what, what was your plan growing up as a young bloke at school? Was it anything to do with this or not? Um, no, that's interesting. My, my mother gave me a book um, as a teenager called War Correspondent hmm. and uh, – Obviously, I read it and I thought, yeah, you know, being a a reporter or journalist or something like that wouldn't be a bad caper, which is why I then tried uh, to go to News Limited, um, got the job as a copy boy. um, And after that, I was, I thought, you know, what do I do? I I can't get a, a job here. I might have a crack in Perth. And so I... Jumped on the train. I walked, arrived, walked down the main street, St George's Terrace, and I saw a sign with stairs leading down, and it was six pm, the radio station. Yeah. So I thought, I'll, I'll go in there and see them, see the newsroom, and um, you know, I, I think I may have added a, a little bit of mayo. I think I quickly went from a copy boy to a senior cadet. And, uh, With a bunch yeah. of exclusives in your back pocket. <laughs> anyway, so Barry Custance was the news the director, I remember him, and he we had a chat and he said, uh, go in the booth and read these scripts and whatever. And uh, I came out and he said, when would you like to start? Wow. And that was really the start of it. So I did news there for probably... Uh, 18 months before uh, I decided to head overseas. But interestingly, down the passageway of 6pm, you have studios next to each other and one at the end. And um, I would go down after my my news shift and just to the uh, end studio because that was basically used for recording commercials and things like that. And I would practice being a disc jockey because I fancied myself as a radio announcer. Right. And one person who was there, who'd been there, uh, I think all the time that I was there, was a gentleman by the name of Dennis Cometti. Really? Yeah. So that's when we first met. Wow. In the studios of 6pm. So, Sandy, the... Can you give me a bit of your sort of practice DJ work? What, like, what, what were you going with, Sandy, in the day? <laughs> oh, you know... Uh, platters that matter and things like this. <laughs> <laughs> so corny. Platters uh. that matter. <laughs> you said you went overseas. Yep. Uh, I'm a man that um, loves to see a bit of the world and I love to hear about people's. Were you a backpacking style situation or what were you doing? Pretty much. I, um, I wanted to go to South Africa and then on to London. Yep. And so arrived at Johannesburg, and if you remember, well, you might remember, but in, in those days, which is around 1970, okay, uh, apartheid was a major concern yeah. 
in Africa, South Africa in particular. And uh, so I arrived there with journalist on my passport. I was then ushered into a room and sat down for a while and someone came out and told me after a while, look, you've got a choice. You can go to London or we can put you on a plane back to Perth. I thought, well, you know, I'm not going back to Perth. I'll go to London. So that's what I did and um, took took different jobs. Um, some you might find hard to believe, but I... Uh, go on. Give me a couple, Sandy. So um, this is London in the in 1970? Yep. Yep. Okay. I had. I can remember three jobs I had. One was uh, cutting curtains, uh, working for <laughs> a, a curtain company. Uh, the other yes. one, cop this, was officiating the construction of office furniture into major buildings in London. <laughs> and I'll never forget, I had to do the, the head of the stock exchange, put, construct his new desk. Right. And I went with, with one other person. Well, I mean, it was just watching two two juveniles who didn't really know much <laughs> trying to do it. Eventually we got there. And the last one was um, yeah. I got a job. There's a town in the Midlands called Worksop, which was... Worksop. Uh, yeah, Worksop. And it was uh, a major base for Australians during the war. And the, the people in the Midlands loved the Australians. And I got a job on a, a big farm, like big. You know, it used to have its own cricket team. It, it's had its own church. It had uh, a number of houses. So I went there with a friend and they we were delegated a house and we were each given a tractor. And a uh, first job, I think we were we were cleaning animal sheds, whether they were pig sheds or cattle sheds and taking the fertiliser out and spreading it and things like that. And then when we'd done that, they said, we've got this other job for you. It's called brashing. Now, I didn't know what brashing was, but they also grew pine trees on this property. Brashing is taking, uh, with a saw, is taking the bottom six feet of branches off the actual tree. I suppose to let it breathe uh-huh. at the bottom and things like that. Now, Howie, yes. this is in winter in England. <laughs> and if you've ever used a saw yeah. cutting a branch <laughs> on a pine tree in winter when with the noodle with the needles, as soon as you do this, you get absolutely swamped <laughs> with water that's been on the needles. So and and we were paid by the acre. Oh, Not, by the acre. Know, oh, no. I think we did about two acres and said, that's it. We're out of here. <laughs> it was hard yakka. So, Sandy, we've explored a, a few different jobs in the UK. You come home. I, I won't make you go through every job you've had to get uh, where we need to be, but what was your first on-television role? Uh, I went back to Adelaide. And did an audition and John Fowler, who was the managing director, said, come in and do an audition. And they gave me some scripts. And I, ne- I always remember, I, I was sure that I'd... They gave me one that was um, the story of the ve- on the vegetable market. Um, <laughs> you know, cabbages are selling at this and carrots at this and 
potatoes and I, I went out and I came out and I thought, oh, shivers, I've stuffed this up. Anyway, um, I got the job. So that was my first appearance on Metropolitan Television and, as a, as a, again, as a general announcer, I, I did, you know, the, the midday movie, I did the sport on the news, sometimes I read the news, sometimes you do the weather and... Uh, you know, you football. Football wasn't in my line of sight at that time. Um, I was fairly keen on uh, perhaps trying maybe variety, um, which came to a screaming halt. Um, Why? Well, in Adelaide, as in Melbourne, they had a program called the Penthouse Club. Now, okay. uh, Bill Collins and Mary Hardy. Did it very well in Melbourne because Bill was uh, a vaudevillian. He was just so, so talented. Here's Mary Hardy with Charlene Clancy. In the cool, cool, cool of the evening. And in Adelaide, it was Bob Francis and Anne Wills that did the Penthouse Club. Now, the Penthouse Club was variety and in both Melbourne and in Adelaide, always on a Saturday night, interspersed with the trots. <laughs> so, you'd, so you'd go to Globe Derby for race one and then come back and hear Ann Wills singing whatever. Holly <laughs> Brown, who's got uh, silicon. Uh-huh. Oh, don't be oh, Tony Grant. Really? We've got the trotters out at the showgrounds. Right Let's now. go over there. Let's have a trot. Right. Um, <laughs> So, the <laughs> so I thought, you know, I could give this um, entertaining a, a bit of a, a crack. And uh, yeah. they said, yeah, look, that's fine. Um, what we will get you to do um, is uh, just go to our uh, uh, music conductor and he's got a studio down in Melbourne Street in Adelaide and if you could do an audition uh, for singing, that would be great. And I looked at him and I said, look... <laughs> I can do a few things, but I can't sing. <laughs> he said, no, no, it's fine. We've got the technical equipment nowadays that we can fix up your voice oh, yeah. and you'll be fine. I said, well, I'm just telling you. So off I tootled down to Melbourne Street. i never forget the song. It was a shocking song by a singer called Bobby Vinton and it was called Roses Are Red, My Love. A right. smaltzy romantic... Oh. <laughs> Anyway, so I started, and, I, and the, the the first couple of lines are, roses are red, my love, violets are blue, sugar is sweet or whatever. Anyway, and the guy's on the piano and he suddenly stops <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, I don't suppose by any chance you can read poetry. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of my aspirations to be on the penthouse club. <laughs> So, so the penthouse club was shut down. You know what I did? What? You know what happened, Harry? Oh, oh. I got I got banished to the trots. <laughs> <laughs> so you oh, could you were looking to be a modern day Hugh Jackman, and yeah. you, you ended up at the trots. Finished <laughs> so, up at the trots. So, so was that your sort of opening of the door into the world of sport? Well, it was, but it, it progressed. <laughs> pretty quickly because th- then they did ask me if I was if I would like to call football and 
uh, you know, to be honest, I'd, I'd never called football. I, I hadn't thought about it. I loved the game. And I, so I, yep. I said yes. So I started uh, doing the reserves and uh, after a couple of years I did the second game on the, with the seniors. We only did two games and had a, a program a bit like Melbourne did. It was, I think ours was called the Big Replay um, that went to there <laughs> on a Saturday night. And uh, also... Uh, at about that time, the station in Adelaide had, like seven in Melbourne, been doing a world of sport. So they asked me, would I be interested in comparing world of sport? And so that's what I did. And from then on, it just sort of, you know, it snowballed a bit and I settled into uh, calling and, and really enjoyed it and settled into world of sport and by that time, you know, it's 1978, 79, and uh, all of a sudden I get a call from Melbourne to if I'd like to go and do Moscow. So yeah, right. that's, that's really what happened. Talk to me about world sport. This is Channel 7 Melbourne, calling in stations throughout Victoria, South Australia and southern New South Wales. A big welcome to World of Sport. This will be partly... I did this with Greg Chappell recently, Sandy, and it, it was yeah. his, his career was in some ways a journey through my youth, whether it was right. the Ducks or um, the World Series cricket or uh, him playing his final test innings. A, a lot of what I've been watching in relation to you is a bit of a journey through my youth. I, I have very early memories of World of Sport, which was obviously... A enormous, enormous show. Uh, I uh, I looked at it here, thirteen hundred and fifty-five episodes. When you did the last episode, what was yep. World of Sport to you? The characters you were working with. When I was young, I'd rather a fight than a feed. Discipline wins matches, mates. So come on, blokes, take heed. Up, one, two, three, four. Only ah. one, only one thing that Uncle said wrong in that opening. He'd prefer a fight than a feed. I could never ever believe it. But welcome one and all to World of Sport. Well, start, start, tell me about the ads. So, like, you're hosting the show oh. and then you go off to the side and, like, you start reading an ad for the latest Ford live on television. It's bloody extraordinary, mate. <laughs> it's classic television. Are you when you get the greatest deal in Melbourne on the 1-2 challenge against Toyota? You guessed it. New Oakley Motors. Now, here's the challenge to World of Sport viewers. If you test drive a Ford light truck, Ford will pay $50 to any customer who who then purchases and takes delivery of one of the selected range of Toyota light trucks in September. Well, you're right. Now, I'll preface it by saying that uh, Bill Collins was a vaudevillian. Yes. Doug Elliott was a vaudevillian. And those two, along with Ron Casey, basically it was their baby. World of Sport was their baby. Enormous show, the massive show. Yeah, but they bought the time. They bought the time from Channel 7. And then Doug went out and sold it. Oh. So that's how they did it uh, until oh. finally they... So they then went the net, they sold the ads. Yeah, until the network found out <laughs> these gentlemen are making too much money, <laughs> I think we'll take over. But um, Doug had his own little corner uh, in the studio and uh, newbies like me, you know, marvelled at, at just being in the presence of these great names, you know, Bill Collins and Jack Dyer and uh, Lou Richards and uh, 
grumpy old uh, Jack Elliot. Um, huh. You know, it was was just fantastic. So anyway, I had to. I started doing a few ads, and um, I think the guy who was a good friend of Ron's, Neil Nielsen, was the Ford dealer, I think, or the Holden dealer. And uh, so in those days, of course, there was no auto cue or anything like that. You had these huge broadsheets that, you know, probably almost uh, a metre in height and probably three-quarters of a metre wide and someone would print out the script for you. That's fine. So there I am, rather nervous, reading this uh, script for Neil Nielsen then Uncle Doug just casually wanders over and he takes out a cigarette lighter and he lights the bottom <laughs> of the sheet. So suddenly I have to start reading quicker to get through to the bottom before the flames take me away. So, you know, he's, if you want to buy a used car, then make it out of Neil Nelson Motors. Go there on Sunday and you'll get a special deal. And... It was ridiculous. <laughs> well, as the Bombers were a knockout yesterday, you too could do a knockout deal tomorrow. Hurry, because this offer closes September 29 and not applicable to certain government and fleet sales. He, the other one he did to newbies, and he won't mind me saying it, um, Uncle was a huge man, huge man. Yep. And um, what he would do is if someone was, sometimes it might even be Lou, if Louie was doing a, a read or a script or something like that, he would just go and stand in front of the script, take out his belt and just drop his pants <laughs> and stand there. Now, it wasn't a pretty sight. <laughs> but that was, that, that in many ways encapsulated world of sport. You know, you'd yeah. have Bill Collins, Bill Collins getting ready to do the racing. Well, he's puffing away on his seat. He's in his position. He's there. Smoking away, and I'd throw Bill racing at Flemington yesterday. Uh, and what a fantastic day it was for Damien Oliver. And Bill goes, <laughs> That's right, Sandy. You know, and you'd see the smoke in the background, you know. That's how professional we were, not. So, but that was what people loved. Well, I can remember, Sandy, I used to line produce a show called Sports World in the same oh, studios yeah. that you yeah. would originally been doing World of Sport, I would imagine. Joe Griggs was Joe Griggs was the host. Yes. And uh, Dermot Brereton, Paul Salmon, um, with Matty Weiss and Glenn Postel and and uh, these guys. Gordon was uh, there at Channel 7 at the stage. He was yeah. head of sport. And then Graham Rowland took over. And, and I used to go and watch Rex's show. Right. Produced by a guy called Brendan Keenan directly yes. after it was, it was Rex's footy show, and he'd have all these, and and he'd have the giveaways and the chocolates, and and the footballers would come in and they'd be eating pies, and I haven't ever seen anything in television like that because it's become a completely different world. But that's my prism into the world that you are operating in, where TV, Sandy, just looked so much fun and so loose and fly by the seat of your pants, which I love about television, but yeah. we don't get a great deal of these days. No, I agree with you. And, and you're right. It was, we actually had off the studio, uh, it might have originally been a very small makeup room, but uh, Ron Casey employed this gentleman who I th- who'd had a pretty tough life, little Gordon. His <laughs> name was Gordon. That's all I know. And 
he was in charge of the bar. They made they converted that room into a bar <laughs> where you'd always find Jack and Doug and the boys having a good time. So, and that that encapsulated world of sport. You could you'd be in there losing there having a beer, and some of the floor managers. You know, you wouldn't want to be the floor manager on World of Sport because, you know, the, I'd be saying, next up we look at Collingwood and North Melbourne with Lou Richards. And so we go to a break, where's Lou, where's Lou? In they go, he finishes his beer and he comes and sits down and, and he just sprooks away. And from Canberra TV, an AWA 22-inch Thorn colour TV set and a Thorn video cassette recorder to the coach of the year. The most illustrious names, the biggest prizes on the world of sport, Westpac. But there's another player not doing too well on the set of that Riola, and that's one of the prime reasons why they're not winning so much or going so well. Crackers. He was the creator, but he's not creating any longer. Louis, would you dump him and put him in the second? Well, I would never dump Morris Riola because you don't dump champions, but I think something's got to be done about him because he's not playing well well enough. Well, he should be put in the game or he showed in the last quarter. I played him half forward today, which is ridiculous. They should let him be a ruck rover or a rover. But we're blaming those three guys all the time. He's wearing the famous number 17 Jack and at the moment he's not living up to it. It was all seat of the pants stuff. I used to say to Gordon, or actually Gordon probably said it to us, World of Sport was the only program that after 10 minutes we were 15 minutes late. (laughs) And we were. You know, the running sheet almost went out the window. It was crazy. But, the, like, some of the instances, and I can remember watching this and I found it on YouTube. You may not even remember this, but obviously the great Lee Matthews-Neville Bruns incident oh, yeah, where yeah. Lee took Neville Bruns out. I, I guess it was the next morning. But first things first, and when you woke up this morning, sadly, the headlines that greeted you on the Sunday papers read like this. In the Sunday press, it was bloodbath. And the Sunday Observer, Hawks and Cats riot. Shane Castleman prepared this report for Seven National News last night. Then Lee Matthews decided to live up to his lethal reputation by stopping Geelong's Neville Bruns cold in his tracks. This incident escaped the umpire's attention, but not that of the Geelong players as they swarmed in on Matthews, who received some instant retribution. And you had Tommy Hafey, the Geelong coach, he would have been, and Alan Jeans, the Hawthorne coach, in the studio, and it was the rawest, roughest, tensest television I reckon I've seen. It was extraordinary. Do you, you recall that? I certainly do. We're a happy team at all. Time now for the first of our club corners on World of Sport. Opposing coaches from yesterday's clash between the Hawks and the Cats, Tom Hafey and Alan Jeans, talking about the game with Peter McKenna. Well, firstly to you, Tom, are you disappointed with the undisciplined performance of some of your players? I'm talking as regards the reports and the Jackson incident in the last five minutes. Yes, I think that we probably blew any chance that we had of winning the match when uh, it all erupted, of course. And you could hear a pin drop. Yeah. Um, it was Peter McKenna doing the interview yes. and he was concentrating on Alan Jeans and in the studio, uh, just to set the scene, you know, you had the the woodchoppers over there getting ready or the Ballantines roller cycling derby they're setting up. Um, <laughs> and this was Club Corner, it was called, yeah. in those days. Yeah. And and Pete started on this interview with, and he's into Alan, uh, over what Peter was very unhappy about yeah. um, that transpired. Alan, you've always been, you're a man of standing in football a great name in football, 
Uh, you've always believed in the hard game and the fair game. Have you got any comment to make about the fact that two of your players this year have been involved in king hits behind the play? Well, you say two. I don't remember two incidents, but <clears throat> if you're referring to yesterday, I think, um, you know, firstly, I just want to say that we don't condone anything. The game must be paramount in everybody's opinion. And Alan, you know, he's got to support his yeah. his man. Yes. He, um, but you could hear a pin drop. Now, that's all I'm going to say about it. Well, I think there's a lot of Hawthorne supporters out there and Geelong supporters. A guy has got a broken jaw in two places, Alan. Uh, did you speak to the player concerned after the game? Have you given your opinion or...? Uh, Peter, if you want to continue with this discussion, and this morning you selected two things. You wanted to go back and dig skeletons out of the cupboard. Now, I can just say to you, there's certain incidents just happened recently. Now, if you want to go back, it's just as embarrassing for your club. I can recite incidents against the club that you played for, the same as against Geelong. If you want to go back into these incidents. Now, I think you have a certain responsibility to the game, the same as I do. I said I don't condone the thing, and I left it at that. Now, you want to continue with it. Now, just leave it at that at this particular stage. I think even if you watch that today, you would say that is that is just amazing television. Yeah, it is. Well, I, I watched it yesterday, Sandy, and it hit me between yeah. the eyes. And there's another one. Ron Casey interviewed, I think it might have been Rocky Marciano. Right. And I wasn't there. That was before my time, but they said then that the studio just came to a halt. It was one of the great interviews of all time. Well, Rocky, it's great to have you here at World of Sports. <clears throat> and as you can see, all the fans here enjoy having a champion with them here in the studio. There's a champions of all sport here in Melbourne, and uh, we're very happy to have another one from America now to say hello to us throughout Victoria. Thank you, Ryan. Rocky, how do you feel about uh, the result of the heavyweight title fight this morning? Cassius Clay stopping Brian London in only three rounds. Well, it was expected. Uh, really, this was not a, a fight of importance. I think it's what Cassius Clay himself calls the bum of the month club. <laughs> but, I mean, that's what World of Sport was. You could have, you know, have all these different things. You know, John Dobie with the lilting music for the bowl, lawn bowls, and Colin Long doing tennis and golf and, uh, you know, uh, every yeah. sport was covered. So, and it was just a... A wonderful learning curve. And then we'd finish World of Sport and shoot off to the Lake Oval to do the Army Reserve Cup. So it was a they Hold were big that days. I want to ask you about the Army <laughs> Reserve Cup. Just before we get there, um, obviously the cycling and the wood chopping were a massive part of it. Now, I was listening yep. to you commentate the wood chop. It always <laughs> seemed to be an O'Toole that would get up. Yes. <laughs> the House of Valentine presents the wood chop. And a very big day in the Ballantyne Woodchop because this is the championship final. And we've got the four best axemen in the land to contest it. From Airport West, doing well in the semis, Norm Meyer. Welcome back, Norm. A tree harvester from Currajong is Steve Reese. Welcome to the final, Steve. Now, the man who's won this title on seven occasions, an axe maker from Broadford, Martin O'Toole, and making up the foursome. Winner of the last two championships, another great axeman, a tree lopper from Doncaster, Lawrence O'Toole. 
They've got to get Lawrence O'Toole, though. He's looking for a record eighth championship win. Martin O'Toole is going to be the threat. He's clear of Steve Reese and Norm Meyer. You won't catch Lawrence O'Toole. What a performance. Can you indulge me in my early, early days, Sandy, and give me a bit of wood chopping? You're there, the World of Sports studio. Can you give me some wood chopping? Uh, well, there are a couple of things that you had to be very careful of, so okay. Uh, we might have, uh, let's say we've got Jack O'Toole off the back market 10, and right now let's get into it. Here is the voice of Lawrence O'Toole, and that was pre-recorded, you know, 10, 9, 8, Seven, and then they'd be away, and so Jack or Lawrence—they all—they always all one um, would finish, and you'd, you'd always have to say, "Okay, we're going really well here, but just keep an eye out for the chips, ladies and gentlemen, in the studio, because the wood chips would be flying everywhere." Um, that's just the way it was, but no, it was good. Loved it. That's the end of Sandy Roberts Part A. So much more general joy in Part B. See you there. Listener.